Mormon Discussion Podcast is about helping Latter-day Saints like you lead with faith while tackling deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping the podcast alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. Again, that's mormondiscussionpodcast, all one word, dot org. You can do this for as little as $1.50 a month or $12 a year. And this will also reward you by letting you listen to premium episodes like this one months before the general public has access. Thanks for listening. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Nancy Fippen Brown, welcome back to Mormon Discussion. Thank you. Glad to be here. Glad to have you on again. Uh, tell us again, remind the listeners of the book that you had wrote. I had talked to you about a year ago fascinating book. It covered a lot of the issues that we're going to kind of dance around a little bit tonight, uh, but we're going to kind of talk more generalities. But please uh, hit the listeners up one more time with the book that you wrote and where people can find it before we get started. Okay, sure. Uh, the book is called Help Thou Mine Unbelief, and what it does is it takes science, history, and spiritual phenomena like near-death experiences to show tangible evidence of God and of the restored gospel. I think a lot of people um, don't always get all the answers they'd like to in Sunday school class, and sometimes we just need something with more meat on the bone, something we can see and touch uh, to help bolster our testimonies along with what we do spiritually. So that go, I, I just did a lot of research uh, into these areas, and there's various topics uh, that you can find that all deal with science uh, and history and just tangible evidences uh, to help help our testimonies. Awesome, awesome. Uh, I wanted to sit down with you and, and lots of other past guests that I've had on and try to tackle kind of a list of questions that really hit at kind of the general heart of the issues that members who are going through faith transitions are struggling with. And... And I want to pose each of these to you. And I want to start off with the first one, which is this idea of the phrase, the church is true. And I think, I think when the average member gets up, and I, I've said this in each of the other interviews, so people are going to get tired of the way I ask the questions probably, but, but when people get up in fast and testimony meeting, most members are using phraseology like, I know the church is true, or I know with every fiber of my being that this church is true. And, and I think most of them, when they say that, they're, they're talking about this is the only entity upon the earth that God is, is using to bring salvation to his children. Uh, Nancy, how do you differ from that? If, if at all, what does it mean to you that the church is true? Well, <clears throat> I understand that uh, we in the church kind of use this phrase with um, uh, a lot of sincerity to sum up this huge body of gospel content in which we believe and I hate to see such an important thing as one's testimony diluted into a quick catch-all phrase, but it has become part of our culture, that line, that phrase. For me personally, it means the basic doctrines and priesthood authority found within the church that are designed to help me make righteous choices in this life are truly sent down from God to man through prophets. I believe that. Um, the tenets and principles taught within the church, from the importance of families to being kind and serving our neighbors, uh, to embracing Jesus Christ as our Savior, ring true, and they resonate for me personally. So I believe these things. I have a testimony of these things. Um, 
But I think that we mortals have probably injected a few things into the church culturally that we sometimes think is doctrine, but really is not. And this doesn't make the church any less true at its core, these things that I've just listed. It just means that we need to give space for the foibles and mistakes of humans that will sometimes kind of creep into the to the church, to all facets of the church. But yes, for me, I believe it contains true doctrine. It contains priesthood authority, um, and and therefore it's true. In quotes. So, what what some members who are having a hard time, what they would come back with is they would want to ask, "Do you leave room for for God to be?" Working within other churches, for instance, and, and even other church leaders, not in our faith. So let's say, for instance, Pope Francis from the Catholic Church. Could, could he be an instrument of the hand of God? I mean, could he be somebody who is relaying God's truth in some way to the people he has uh, interaction with, has... Uh, has essentially stewardship over. Does that make sense? Yes, and and my answer to that is is absolutely yes. Um, I I believe that God is called a prophet uh, to the church you know, or to the to the earth to help uh, lead this organization that within the confines of this organization will help us to make good choices, live righteous lives, and someday return to our Father in Heaven. I think the church is a mechanism to help us do that. And there is there are leaders at the helm to to keep it running properly, to answer the questions that come up that, that could be problematic. But but I do believe that God that we don't have a a monopoly on inspiration and revelation by any means. And I think that um, every individual on this earth, including leaders of other churches, has the right to any inspiration from God. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that um, they're always going to interpret it exactly correctly, just as we don't always interpret what we're getting uh, correctly. But I do believe that they have wonderful things to offer. Um, I think really a lot of times uh, other churches and people of other faiths, we, we just we, we kind of... Uh, gravitate toward those things that feel right and good to us. We gravitate towards things that we're familiar with, that are traditional, that maybe our families have always been involved in. And and that's fine. And and I honestly think that uh, that's uh, all going to be worked out in the next life. Um, for me personally, this church is what rings true and makes the most sense to me. And I do believe in the next life it will be the instrument through which uh, everything else happens in the eternities, um, that this is where the priesthood authority lies and it will be disseminated and used you know, throughout the eternities. But certainly, um, truth can be found in many, many places. Yeah. The uh, the next one I wanted to ask about was the, the Book of Mormon and this the phrase that we use in the church that the Book of Mormon is true. And I think most... Most members, when they use that phrase or think that thought, I think the first thing that comes to their mind is that the Book of Mormon is based on actual historical events, that there were real Lamanites, real Nephites, and that they are writing down the mind and will of God, you know, on the metal plates, and that is what Joseph is translating. And, and members who are struggling, 
are trying to find new space here. Some members are trying to figure out if they can hold ground on the Book of Mormon being not historical, but still considering it to be scripture, still holding it close to them and, and finding value in it. Uh, other Latter-day Saints perhaps are trying to work out what translation really means and how much of of the Book of Mormon is is Joseph's own creation and perhaps how much of it does come from Nephites and Lamanites writing down their record. Your thoughts, Nancy, on where you come down on on how you understand or what you presently believe the Book of Mormon to be and and what you think of kind of others as they navigate that space, what maybe you think of that space that they're trying to work through? Um, yeah, this is definitely uh, something that's affecting a lot of people. And um, I personally believe that it was written by real people anciently and that through a translation process, um, probably more revelation than actual deciphering of ancient characters, Joseph Smith brought it forth. Now, I believe the short amount of time it took him to do it, especially with his limited education, along with witnesses to the plates and the translation process and the many evidences to support it as an actual um, uh, document uh, of ancient peoples, um, is enough for me to believe it, that it is what it claims to be. Now, I know that much has been said about this the story we all grew up with regarding the method Joseph used to translate and the current controversy over the lesser-known use of seer stones in the hat. Um, and a lot of people, you know, because of artist renderings throughout the years and stuff, you know, they we never saw that. You know, he was never looking into a hat or whatever, and so it kind of freaks him out a little bit. But I don't believe the church was trying to hide this information since it's mentioned in a number of places in talks, articles, and, you know, just various documents in church history. I mean, it's there. It's not there in abundance, but it's there, and you can find it. But I think the church's main objective, and that's what we have to always go back to, their main, their main objective for being here is to teach the doctrines within the Book of Mormon that lead us to Christ, rather than focusing on all the detail of how it came forth. Um, so let's talk talk a little bit about seer stones. Is that all right? Sure, that'd be great. Okay, so... Seer stones, which conjure up images of, you know, magic and divination, were really a physical tool, I think, it is my opinion, that he felt comfortable with to help him receive revelation uh, to translate the Book of Mormon. Translate that word, you know, it's a, it's a hard word to, to reconcile, but I, I think it's more akin to revelation than anything else. But Joseph had experience with these instruments of frontier folklore, if you will. And so he used them um, when the stone spectacles of the Urim and Thummim that were deposited with the plates were too big and cumbersome for him to use, and he spoke of that. So he switched to these seer stones. But it's interesting because Mormons readily accept the Urim and Thummim as translation aids. Nobody really questioned that. Those are just stones, right, in a bow. Um, so why should a seer stone be any different? Um just because it's new, it's something we haven't always been exposed to, you know, throughout our lives. But if you look at the Bible, there's mention of other physical instruments used by other prophets and leaders to access um, God's power. Okay, things like, you know, the rod of Aaron, or a brass serpent, or holy anointing oils, 
Or how about the Ark of the Covenant? And even Jesus used dirt from the ground mixed with saliva to heal the eyes of a blind man. So so objects, you know, things, instruments, physical things have have always been used by prophets um, just as a uh, a tool, you know, and, and that's really all it really was. But so Joseph, he never said anything about the method of translation. Other people talked about it, but all he ever said was that he did it by the gift and power of God. And to me, that sounds like revelation, um, however that came about. His 19th century Christian beliefs in divining uh, to, to find you know hidden treasures likely prepared him for unearthing the plates and the revelation needed to translate them. He was familiar with it. But as he matured in the gospel, those folk beliefs uh, were no longer needed. And, and I want to say one other thing. Interestingly, the Book of Mormon uh, itself speaks of God preparing, and I quote, a stone which shall shine forth in darkness unto light. I thought that was interesting, <laughs> just to throw in there. Right, right. Do you think, though, I mean, as we talk about seer stones, I just recorded an episode maybe a month ago that will release here in a few weeks, probably before this episode comes out, but where I talk about the history of the Smith family and Joseph prior to really the Book of Mormon. And and so Joseph gets his first seer stone. By all accounts, by, by the best historical information, Joseph gets his first seer stone in 1819 before even the first vision. He gets his second seer stone before Moroni visits. Uh, we have accounts in by four different individuals in three different sources that talk about the Smith family, um, you know, their divination, as you talk about with, with magic circles and things like that. Um, I've, we've got a story of Joseph Smith Sr. trying to vex uh, a guy who's turkey hunting by blowing in turkey. And, and again, some of these sources may be credible, some may not. But it is, I think, a fact that as we kind of go through the next decade or two, as church members, we're going to have to become really comfortable with a pre- a pre-Book of Mormon story about Joseph Smith, a before he gets the plates, we're going to have to come to grips with the history of that of their family and the things they did and the things they they participated in, because we've never heard those stories before. Right. You can see how that's going to be uncomfortable for people and why people struggle. I don't think it's the seer stone so much. It's it's this idea of having to come to grips with how he got it and how he used it and. And why did he switch back and forth? And I think that begin, becomes uncomfortable for people. And over the next decade or two, we're going to have to become more comfortable with the messiness of this history and that the Smiths don't really fit the story that we were told growing up, that they really are this multidimensional family. And I know I'm kind of rambling, but the story we get in church is that these are just really simple, easygoing, good people, always doing the right thing. And then when we read the history, we find out that, like the rest of us, the Smiths were complicated. Yeah, and I think you're absolutely right. Um, we are going to have to to become comfortable with that. Frankly, this is all new to me, too. It wasn't until I actually wrote this book that I became uh, privy to a lot of these things. Um, and so I was just like most the average member of the church. And so, so yeah, I, and I'm I'm here to say that, you know, I've had to face some of these things and grapple with it personally and, and come to my own understanding of where I can feel comfortable. And frankly, I'm not having a problem with all of that personally 
because I have accepted the fact that Joseph Smith was human, that the whole Smith family was human, and that really a lot of that stuff was very um, acceptable and a lot of people were into it back in those days. And they even said that, uh, from what I've read, that people felt that Joseph had a gift uh, prior to the Book of Mormon, you know, the gold plates, um, uh, being able to find things using seer stones. And again, I look at that as maybe he did have that gift, you know. Um, we all have gifts of the Spirit. That was probably one given to him uh, as a preparation in a lot of ways, for what he was about to get, for what he was about to do. You know, if he if he believed in heavenly visitations and being led to, to things, you know, by heavenly visitations and using the, these objects to translate and so forth, or to find things, find treasures, I think that prepared him in a lot of ways so that what was happening to him when he was introduced to these things was believable and he could accept it because it was familiar to him. So I don't, I don't really have a problem personally with all of that. I think again, you almost have to look at the big picture. If you start nitpicking over, well, th- this one source said this and somebody else said that again, like you said, you know, how do we know, uh, what's a valid source and what isn't? Um, there were plenty of people out to get him back in those days, those same people that claimed to, you know, say these things about him and who knows what their designs were. So we have to take it with a grain of salt. But if you look at the big picture of what he brought forth and the content of that Book of Mormon scripture and how quickly he wrote it or translated it, put it, brought it forth, you know, I don't know, there's a lot of things to me. There's a lot of evidences also that tell me that this is a true book. I mean, things like Hebrew literary forms, you know, chiasmus and parallelism that we read about that you can find in, in Biblical literature, you find them all over the Book of Mormon. Physical evidence is linking the old and the new world found in ancient texts. Um, writings on metal plates found all over the Near and Middle East. Ancient, tra- ancient trade route across the Arabian Peninsula, Peninsula matching up with Lehi's flight, you know, into the wilderness. Uh, author identification techniques, you know, they call word prints, confirming that two dozen separate writers um, wrote the Book of Mormon just as Joseph claimed, not any 19th century writers. So all of that helps me to not have a problem. But you are, what you said is true. We are going to have to come to some grips, some terms with uh, some of this new stuff that we didn't know before. But I think it's possible if we have the right attitude and do it with the spirit. Yeah. And, and, Pointing out as you're talking about with the evidences and things, I, I I try to tell the critics all the time that no matter what conclusion you make that Joseph's a fraud or that he is a prophet of God, either either conclusion when you look at the whole of all that went on is pretty miraculous yeah. and and pretty uh, pretty unreasonable either way. I mean that in a sense that that you have to go through lots of leaps and bounds to make either conclusion work. So why not just have faith and and believe in the the miracle of the restoration because both are going to require you to to essentially look at some ideas and sources and experiences and and say you know that isn't really reasonable or that's really not the best way to explain how this happened both sides have that and I'll give an example yeah, true. I think when when we try to explain away the restoration as being a fraud 
you have to sit down and take a piece of paper and a pen and you got to either choose to make Oliver Cowdery in on it or not. You have to choose to have Sidney Rigdon in on it or not. Either he's being duped or he's an accomplice. And just on that point alone, you can't make those things line up because if Oliver is in on it, then why is he throwing a fit about Fanny Elgar? He should care less. Mm-hmm. And if he's, and if he's being, if he's being duped, then why is he claiming on multiple occasions to be seeing heavenly messengers? And, and so I think, as I point out, either conclusion is to the, to the average observer would seem far fetched. So why not just have faith in the restoration? And, and I hope that people will do that. I, I feel like sometimes people just walk away when they realize the complexity of the history. But the fact is that even if you walk away saying it's not true, that in its own right is a lot of complexity in the story uh, to make things line up. The the next thing I wanted to ask you about was prophets. And I think the average member thinks, you know, Jesus shows up in the room every time these 15 men meet and he gives them uh, his advice and his thoughts on where we go and, and what we do on different issues. The reality seems to be different than that. The race and priesthood issue alone shows that prophets for decades taught what is now accepted as false theories as official doctrine in the 40s and 50s, uh, even even before that. We know that uh, things like the Adam-God doctrine that Brigham Young uh, spoke about and said, hey, this comes from Revelation. Spencer W. Kimball, decades later, said, uh, sorry, we're just not going to believe that. That's That's nonsense. And so... It seems like, as you're pointing out, that these these leaders are human. They they make mistakes. Their their personal flaws are going to show up in the things they do. How, how do you reconcile that word prophet and in, in knowing kind of the messiness of Mormonism and maybe the expectation you had growing up of prophets? How have you had to kind of come to grips with that? And where are you at today with that word? Um, yeah, I I think I again I grew up that same way. I figured. They were walking and talking daily with God, you know. I mean, that seems to be how it was portrayed. And again, I don't know whether that, um, if we just assumed that based on what we were being told or if it was just a cultural thing. I, I don't know. But I definitely don't believe that anymore. And um, and that's okay because I still believe in the office of a prophet and apostles. And I think that that there are times when they do walk and talk with God. I believe that, um, that, and this is, again, this is me speculating. I don't know, but I believe that that doesn't happen, uh, a whole lot. I believe that, you know, you look back at Joseph Smith, he was receiving revelation probably daily, you know, or certainly often, but he was the prophet of the restoration and so much had to be done and brought back and, and so forth. So there was a reason for that. But since then, you know, the actual revelations uh, that have come out uh, have not been, um, they've been few and far between. Most of what we get is policy, you know, and counsel and, and that sort of thing, which is what any leader is supposed to do. And a prophet is the leader of the church. Um, they, but, but their main purpose is to testify of Christ and to be a special witnesses of Christ and to bring the members to Christ. That's what their, their main mission is. And, um, so I think it's also possible that they may receive more revelation than we're being made privy to. 
you know, we're here to walk by faith. So even though we may not be getting a lot from them by way of, you know, direct revelation, something really major, um, they may be getting more than we know. And they're just not allowed to tell us because we're either not ready for it or too much information and we're being spoon fed and we don't have to have faith. So that would kind of mess up the whole plan. Now, let me just say this as to whether I think prophets are infallible. The answer is emphatically no. Uh, I, th- I don't think I've ever felt that way, but the more I know, the more I learn, the more I believe that. I'm certain that mistakes have been made along the way. The whole black issue, I think, uh, was probably a big mistake based on um, the culture of the time. You know, everybody was racist in those days, you know, um, whether in the church or out. You know, I'm just saying that was the culture in America, basically, and I'm sure that... Uh, they, our church leaders were not impervious to that. They are human trying to fulfill a calling. It's a calling. The calling of a prophet is, you know, I'm a visiting teacher. That's my calling. I'm trying to do the best. They're trying to do the best they can. And I suspect that most of the time, the kind of revelation they do get is more akin to what we all experience through personal prayer than the kind Joseph Smith received. Uh, that being the case, uh, I suspect they don't always interpret what they receive correctly as well. I think that's possible uh, because they're human, which is why the church requires a consensus of all the brethren before anything is released as doctrine. And I think it's wonderful that the brethren, some of the brethren themselves, and I'm speci- specifically talking about elders Christofferson and Anderson, and, and that have spoken really pointedly about the brethren that most a lot of most of what they say is opinion and not official church doctrine and not not binding on the church as a whole. Um, so we need to I think we need to cut them some slack <laughs> a, a, a little bit when when they don't always get things right. Uh, but I also want to point out one last thing and that and that I want to quote somebody. I want to quote Moroni when he said, "Condemn me not because of mine imperfection, neither my father." But rather give thanks unto God that he hath made manifest unto you our imperfections that ye may learn to be more wise than we have been. So really, when you think about it, it, maybe it was built into the system that a prophet was going to be imperfect because that's going to help us to use our own brains, our own ability to have faith and make up our own minds and be more wise than we might be otherwise if everything was handed to us and spoon-fed to us. Right, right. Yeah, I think uh, in some ways, we. and again, you pointed out, who knows where we got it from. I think some of it does come from the manuals. I, I know when I was taught the missionary lessons when I was an older teenager that certainly prophets today were compared specifically to Moses, Noah, and Abraham and and there's kind of a connection your brain makes when when that kind of uh, connection is made when you're being taught the gospel. Uh, I know the manuals often talk about prophets and, and the idea that they speak to God. And I think, too, just kind of in our way of sharing our faith, we always focus on the those miraculous moments. So whether it's whether it's Joseph F. Smith seeing, you know, Jesus in the temple, for instance, or, uh, Lorenzo Snow when he goes to St. George to talk about tithing and has this, this miraculous experience. I think as Mormons, we often want to draw on those rather than really take time to kind of talk about the, the fallibility, uh, of leaders and, and, 
I think that's another thing too we'll have to just kind of come to terms with. We'll have to just speak more openly about our leaders being imperfect and then call on our members to still have faith in them and to, to follow them. Um, scripture in general, a lot of members as they're, as they're going through these transitions, they're, they're losing a lot of literalness in scripture and for some people that, that seems to just push them right over the edge and they say, well, if this, you know, if none of these stories are true, then I'm out of here. And where do you, where do you kind of come down on, you know, figurativeness, literalism, uh, within scripture? Is there certain stories that, you know, the culture would see as literal that maybe you see as figurative or, or where are you on, on that uh, spectrum? Um, I, I believe that the scriptures do contain the mind and will of God where translations are correct. Uh, but because God's messages are presented through the languages and cultural traditions and really general knowledge of the world of, that the ancient prophets were exposed to at the time, um, the story uh, might be lost. The, the actual, not the story, but God's word in its purest form might not be as pure as it might be otherwise if it was coming straight from him to us. Um I think we lose a lot in scripture uh, just because of, again, human mistakes and errors. It's certainly probably diluted and even flawed in certain places. I speak mostly of the Bible here, but um, scripture in general really does hold a treasure trove of good information that can teach us about the gospel and the plan of salvation. And it's up to us to use our inspiration to take from them what will draw us closer to Christ and help us live our lives better. Now, as far as figurative versus literal, um, the truth is there is room in Mormonism for a figurative interpretation of, of these writings. It's absolutely acceptable to view the Bible in particular as a valuable historical record um, that's filled with metaphorical content. Now, that may be, I think people are starting to come to that, you know, a little more. I think we looked at it as literal for, again, most of our church lives. Um, but in the absence of actual doctrine on a particular topic, it's perfectly acceptable to subscribe to either perspective, literal or figurative. And, and I, I think people can choose for themselves on that. Now, even in the church's own official website, it, st- it states that there's a broad range of approaches to biblical interpretation. So it's okay. There's permission, you know, to look at things figuratively if that's if that's what you want to do. And that doesn't change the truthfulness of what's in there. It just means you got to use your brain and your inspiration a little more because again, it's not going to be spoon-fed. Um Yeah, yeah. And I like that. I think that when we give members permission to hold more expansive views, I think in reality we're just giving them a lot more room to kind of walk around and and not be not feel like any one moment or issue or point is is this precipice which pushes them out of the church that rather now they just have to reframe things and and rethink through something but when they're given room to do that I I feel like that's almost always a good thing. Well, and and just to ex- expand on this a little bit, um I did a whole chapter on this this whole idea in my book and one of the things that I found was really interesting is that Bible scholars say that common to all ancient texts is what they call etiological legends. And these are stories and myths used to explain how something came to be, or more importantly, teach some kind of moral principle. And these etiological legends uh, are basically always 
rich in symbolism and exaggerations of real events. And they kind of include sketchy understandings of the facts, basically. So when prophets of our day reference such stories as these, they generally emphasize the messages that they contain, not whether they're figurative or literal. And um, so really, viewing stories in the Bible and even some in the Book of Mormon is inspired but figurative doesn't invalidate their teachings in the least. Because remember, according to what I just said, um, a hallmark of ancient writings is that they always contain elements of ancient mythology. That's part of what's in all of them. Now, I don't know how much more you want to go into this, but I can give you an example of like the Noah and the Flood story possibly as being figurative. Sure, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that one. Um, there's, there's, that's just one I can pick out. There's plenty. Um, but I, I've always sat in Sunday school class, and every time that we study the Old Testament or that story comes up, it, it seems to always be presented as literal. And I've always had a hard time with that. I just personally don't see it that way. Um, many, but some people do. And so again, you're, you're kind of going back and forth between figurative or literal. So maybe there's some place in between that I've landed on that makes sense to me. Many scholars believe that the flood, while real, was actually limited to a local area rather than covering the whole planet. And understanding the meaning of certain Hebrew words bears this out. Let me just mention some. In Hebrew, the word earth means land and not planet or world. Even though in Genesis 4.14 we read that Cain complains of being driven from the face of the earth, he didn't really go to a different planet, but to a different land. In Hebrew, the word Eretz means land. Israel today is called Eretz Israel, the land of Israel. Okay, so we're talking about land being, you know, a, a, a local place. So, Taken literally, when the Bible says that Noah took two of every kind of animal into the ark, it would have included dangerous carnivores, making such a journey impossible. Okay, well, look at Hebrew again. It says that two of every behema, and I may not be pronouncing this correctly, but which means dumb or mute animal like an ox or a cow, um, or in other words, a domesticated animal. It doesn't say that he took every bayor. Wild beast is what that means, was taken into the ark. So domesticated animals make sense because they were needed for food and clothing, you know. So for me, when I put all this together, it just tells me that it was a local place that this happened. This interpretation of the account solves some of the problems inherent in the, in the literalist view. Furthermore, a look at nature in the Mesopotamia area, such as southern, you know, right right now what we call southern Iraq, where the Tigris and Euphrates rivers join, shows that this region is prone to severe flooding. So there's geological evidence or geographical evidence um, that flooding actually caused some major disruptions to ancient communities of people who, from their limited perspective, could have thought a local deluge appeared to be global. So... I'm just saying that's just one thing. You can you can look at all kinds of stories in the Bible and uh, find explanations that show that it might not be as literal as maybe we've been brought up to think. And I'm okay with that. In fact, that makes more sense to me than the literalist view. Yeah, good, good. And I like that because it gives people room. And I think that's, again, that's 
what's needed for people to hang around and to make things work is to have some space. Um, I want to, I want to skip ahead here and talk a little bit about the idea of doctrine. The, the word doctrine, I think whether we're talking lay members or even among leadership, we're often throwing around this idea that doctrine is truth. It is God's word to us. And it doesn't change. We've even had talks recently where leadership have told us that these certain things are doctrine and they're not going to change. And yet the church's history seems to be full of incidents and experiences where we use the word doctrine only to 10 years later, 30 years later, 100 years later, go back and say, yeah, we're going to change that now. And uh, that's no longer doctrine. That was just a disavowed theory. It was just a cultural hiccup, whatever we want to call them, your idea on the word doctrine that how, how we should use that maybe, or what it means or, or how you frame the word personally so that, that we don't walk away from the word thinking in absolutes, especially knowing that doctrine within our faith really has evolved and changed time and time again. Yeah. And I, I think um, that when you come right down to it, there's probably very little doctrine if you use the word in its purest sense, um, doctrine is, is something that you would assume uh, wouldn't change, that it's, it's really a basic core tenet of the, of the gospel. And I don't think there's a lot of those. I think we have a lot of policy and uh, principles, you know, that sort of thing. But doctrine, I think, is fairly limited. And again, Joseph Smith taught that um, uh, it's any the doctrine really is to lead us to Christ uh, that he died he was buried and he rose again on the third day and ascended into heaven and he said that all other things which pertain to our religion are only appendages to it okay so it seems to me that something that's an appendage uh, can be changed when when it deemed necessary or inspired through you know, the brethren, and it's okay. So if you get hung up on the word doctrine and that we can, nothing can ever change, that could never change and that the church is wrong to try and change it, well, that's just not true. And you mentioned one thing. Um, I was just going to mention a few more, that there's pol- things that have been changed, doctrines that have been changed uh, over the years and repudiated by modern church leaders, one being polygamy. And you mentioned uh, the Adam-God theory. Also, the priesthood ban on members of African descent and blood atonement. All of these things were considered doctrine at one time and are no longer accepted. So I have no problem with such doctrinal changes and would welcome others if our leaders felt inspired to go there. And I felt okay with it personally because I have a right to my own inspiration on these things too. But I don't think we should get hung up uh, when doctrines change. Uh, but again, I think it all comes back to what a prophet is as well. And I mentioned that I do think prophets are fallible. Not everything a prophet says constitutes doctrine. Again, uh, it's their opinion. A living prophet addresses the issues of our day and is not bound by opinions of earlier leaders. We've got to remember that as well. It's not really reasonable to expect that everything taught by Joseph Smith or Brigham Young applies to us today. And it's a whole different place. We have whole different problems. And also, we need to remember that prophets are not scientists. Their views tend to reflect the prevailing views 
of their time. For example, many of Brigham Young's views about science were seem kind of silly today, such as when he suggested that the moon and the sun were inhabited. You know, well, we we you know, he, he does that make him less of a prophet? No, it just brings out the human part of him along with it. Right, right. You talked about welcoming change if the brethren felt it was right and if you felt it was was right personally as you choose you know to accept things essentially by the feeling of the holy ghost which i think all of us are responsible to be in tune with and when we hear things taught or we hear changes made or we hear things come up that we hadn't heard before the holy ghost is such a tool for that that we all have a responsibility to have with us one of the changes that lots of members are talking about right now is is something something within the lgbt issue to to help our gay brothers and sisters have more space within the church to participate. And and I don't want to put you on the spot. I want to be sensitive here. But this issue is one that I'm passionate about, and I, I feel for what we ask of our gay brothers and sisters. We essentially say, look, you're gay. It's not a choice. We're not, we now recognize that. We used to, we used to speak at least at times about it being a choice, and we've now come to terms that it isn't. Uh, we used to recommend that gay members get married to someone of the opposite gender and things would work out. We now recognize that that is really bad advice and usually doesn't end well. We, we used to do treatment programs at Brigham Young University that tried to fix these people. We've come to grips that it can't be fixed. And so we've kind of landed on this spot where we say, look, there's really nothing we can do about this, but we're still asking you not to outwardly be what you are. And when I turn that around and put myself in their shoes, that becomes an impossible task. If someone came to me and said, Brother Real, I want, you know, I know you're straight. I know that, uh, that you have romantic feelings in a desire to be close with, with people, you know, women opposite gender. Um, but we want you to go the rest of your life choosing not to outwardly be what you are. And I would say, I'm sorry, but that's impossible and I'm going to walk away, which is what all the, I should say all, but that's what most of our gay members do. They, they essentially come into the church and then go right back out. Your thoughts on this issue, and, and I don't want to put you on the spot. You can, you can tread whatever areas here you want to, but maybe speak for a moment about how we as members treat those who are different than us. Perhaps your thoughts on the issue specifically and what you would welcome or what you hope for or what you would Welcome if it, if the brethren decided that it was appropriate. I mean, where do you kind of fall on this issue? And I, and again, I'm throwing 40 questions out in one question. It's just that I think so many in the church are seeing this issue as one where the church doesn't seem to currently be budging a whole lot and seems to be painting lines. And yet the, the situation that our gay brothers and sisters are in in order to live the gospel to me as a straight person would be an impossible task for myself. I agree. And I don't know. This is probably the toughest question uh, of this interview <laughs> because there's really no good answers. And depending on which side of the line you fall on, I don't think you're going to be satisfied uh, unless it's all or nothing kind of a thing. You know, there are many members of the church who just adamantly, uh, you know, they feel sorry for, for LGBT members, but uh, adamantly are opposed to, to any changes uh, by the church along those lines. And then you have those who are adamantly supportive of, of allowing gay marriage, you know, within, within our temples and so forth. And so it's a tough question, but I have to say that my heart goes out 
to all the individuals and families in the church who have family members who identify themselves in, in, as LGBT. And I can only imagine how it would feel to know you are gay and will never have your chosen lifestyle be fully accepted by the church that you love. Um, many of these people are rejected by their parents, their families and friends. And unfortunately, many even go so far as to attempt and often commit suicide in large numbers, um, as a matter of fact. And that just breaks my heart. Um, church leaders have taught members to love and honor gays and lesbians as sons and daughters of God and to welcome them in the church. And I applaud the church for that. But because the church sees the institution of marriage in religious terms, it cannot redefine marriage. But it has, however, supported measures which grant all the civil and secular benefits of marriage to other domestic partnerships. And and I that's great, and I applaud all of that. That doesn't really solve the problem, but it's... It's a wonderful and it's a good thing, and um, and I applaud that. But most Can of I us. Can I ask you something? Yeah, sure. So, do you find it ironic though that the church takes this stance of pushing against the world in its attempt to redefine traditional marriage, and yet the church itself, a hundred and seventy years ago, redefined the definition of traditional marriage? Does that seem does that seem ironic at all? Yeah, as you it, weigh that. Yeah, there's definitely some irony there, and um, uh, I, you know, I, I guess it's, it's one came about by way of revelation, uh, and so for for whatever reason, you know, this was something that uh, uh, polygamy was told to be practiced, and for for whatever reason, gay marriage is not in that category. Right. And I think that's, I think that's a good answer. And I think that, you know, we do have to come to grips with, you know, maybe the Lord hasn't finished all that he wants to say on this topic. And the brethren really are limited to only hold the ground that he has given them up to this moment. Yeah. And so while they are drawing lines and painting the, the church into a corner on some of this, in some ways they almost are responsible to do that until God says otherwise. Uh, yes. And, let me let me share one other thing that I think really touched me as I've studied this out and has been looking for for answers for myself. I read a personal blog of a of a young man named Ben. He shared a very moving story about being a gay Mormon, and he described how he pretty much had to choose, make had four options with regard to being a gay Mormon. He said, one, I can marry a woman. Two. I can stay single and celibate. Three, I could get a gay Mormon boyfriend and have a platonic, non-sexual relationship. Or four, I could leave the church and marry someone I'm attracted to. And he said he considered all of those options heavily and ultimately decided to stick with number two, stay single and celibate, because he loves the church too much to do otherwise. So he had to make a choice my church that I love or having what everybody wants in life. And that is, you know, a a monogamous relationship with someone you love. But then he went on to say he also realized after all those four things that there was a fifth option. And as I read that, it helped me to think that this is what holds the key to the whole issue. He has, it has to do with what Paul wrote in the Bible when Paul wrote, 
I have not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for him that love him. And this young man said that he has chosen option five, to live by Paul's words and have hope that good things are going to come to him and other gay Mormons as they love God and live righteous lives. No one knows what the future holds, but he has faith that God has not forgotten him and that somehow there will be a place for him. And I think that's really where we have to be on this issue. Yeah, and I and I would add that uh, I hold that same hope. And, and well, I, I don't. I don't think you could go out and look at anything that I've said or written, even though I've you know, I say and write a lot. I don't think you could find anything where I've said this doctrine has to change. But I would say that if it did change tomorrow, I would welcome it with open arms. Uh, because I, I think the majority of our gay brothers and sisters are in an untenable position. Yes. And, uh, and they, you know, it's almost impossible for them to even stay in the church. Some make it work. And I say, God bless those who do. And, and, uh, my, my, my appreciation and respect goes out to those and to those who can't, uh, my love goes out to them. I just, I feel awful about, uh, the situation. Yeah. I, I want to wrap, I want to wrap up. Uh, I just again appreciate so much your, your taking uh, time out of your day to, to spend with us. I just wanted to wrap up asking you, is there anything else that you're working on? Any other books in the future that you're, you're considering writing or, or what's next on the horizon for Nancy Fippen Brown? Well, um, I don't, right now I'm not doing anything. I, uh, as far as that goes, I have relocated to Brigham City, uh, just within the last month to take care, help take care of my mother who's, uh, 85 and ailing. And, um, and so I'm kind of concentrating on family things right now. So, uh, I'm not really thinking of another book or anything at this point, although someday I, I would not rule that out. Um, but as a wrap up, could I, just say my own little wrap up. <laughs> Please. <laughs> that I'd, I'd like, love to hear your thoughts. I'd like to leave with you. Um, from things that I have read, it appears that often when a Mormon leaves the church, he or she doesn't tend to join another church. And that's not an absolute, but frequently they just do their own thing and quit believing in God altogether. And I can understand that and would probably be the same way if I ever dropped out because the only real concern for me has always been over God himself. Um, I really don't have a problem with all the issues church critics like to push. Generally speaking, I mean, I've had to face them and come to terms with them. But I think there are plenty of good answers to to obliterate a lot of the false and negative information that we get bombarded with. But for many of us, the questioning and doubt we feel falls squarely on whether God even exists at all. Because we live in a physical world and and we're so limited in what we actually know about things beyond our planet, it can be difficult to grasp the concept of an, an omnipotent, um, omnipresent, omniscient God. And what we really need is something uh, that's evidentiary to help us believe. And that's why I wrote that book, uh, to bring out... Um, evidences that people can hang on to to help them know that there is a God and that the restored gospel is true. But the thing I wanted to tell anybody listening for me about all this is that because of the research I did, I firmly know that God lives and I firmly believe that there's an afterlife. And I'll tell you the truth, 
that's what I hang my testimony on. I really feel that this life is a snap of the fingers and that we came here to get a body and to experience what we couldn't experience without it, but that the majority of growth and progress and and fixing all the garbage, the inequity in life, the problems, the things that people go through, the, the doubts, the, all of that is going to be fixed and taken care of in the next life as we are in a, a, a place where we are loved, all of us, no matter who we are, so that we can learn and grow and become as God would have us become. So that's where I hang most of my thoughts and testimony is on this next life. And I'm trying not to get too hung up in all of the stuff that goes on around us in this life. So for whatever good that does anybody else, that's kind of where I stand. Amen to that. Nancy Fippen Brown, thank you so much for uh, joining us today on the podcast. And uh, just appreciate uh, your voice out there, Mormonism. Thank you. Thank you. Oh,